Good afternoon. Uh, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to Malachi chapter 1. You can find this on page 1104 of your pew Bibles, page 1104. Uh, just a few words of introduction as uh, Lord willing, we begin a, a series on Malachi 1. Uh, it can be difficult for us to uh, remember maybe some of these teeny tiny books way at the end of the Old Testament. In fact, this is at the very end of the Old Testament, if you're having trouble finding that uh, not in your pew Bible. Uh, so Malachi uh, is actually a book written after the exile of Israel uh, when they've returned from Babylonian and Assyrian captivity back into Israel, probably written around the same time as uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. So the people have been back in the land for about 75 or 100 years. The walls have been rebuilt uh, by Nehemiah. The city is Coming back into structure, the temple has been rebuilt at the urging of Haggai and of Ezra. The sacrificial system has been reestablished, but the people are terribly bitter. Uh, one commentator puts it this way. The second temple had been completed at the urging of Haggai and Zechariah, but the achievement ushered in no hoped-for messianic age. Instead, the apathy and disillusionment that delayed the temple's reconstruction for nearly 20 years persisted within the restoration community. The expectations of a renewed Davidic state under Zerubbabel went unfulfilled. The material prosperity prophesied by Haggai was only partially realized, and the streaming migrations of former Hebrew captives foreseen by Zechariah proved to be as yet a mere trickle. Zechariah's call to a deeper spiritual life went unheeded and was even mocked by God's apparent failure to restore covenant blessings to Jerusalem. Well, just like the Israelites then, Christians today often look for the same clues to a merely human Messiah figure in politics, to the empty prosperity gospel for wealth, and to the dying light of the shining city on a hill for worldwide authority. Uh, and so as we open the book of Malachi, we need to remember uh, that our situation is much like theirs, and we must look uh, for God's love and to see what's happening in our hearts as we respond to him or perhaps, as Malachi issues, what is not happening in our hearts. So listen and hear the word of the Lord from Malachi chapter 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, and laid waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. Even though Edom has said, we have been impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus, says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will throw down. They shall be called the territory of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord will have indignation forever. Your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence, says the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name? Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us while this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably? 
says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering at your hand. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, and that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. And thus we'll end the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you that we can come to you uh, in worship Uh, that we have models uh, both of right and proper worship before us, and that also you set a warning before us in your word. We pray that we would heed it, that we would call uh, attention to your love and your greatness as you have showed us throughout your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Philip just returned from uh, Synod this week, and while I've never had the pleasure pleasure, I'm sure, Pastor Rich would say, of uh, attending. I have been to one Presbytery meeting, uh, and that was held in this church uh, when Philip was installed here. And I I remember distinctly one event of the many that came that day. There was discussion about the the closure of a preaching station, uh, a mission church, uh, a church plant uh, that was had been going on for a number of years, and their numbers had dwindled from 8, 10, 12 families down to just two families meeting together and a minister from another denomination coming in to preach. And of course, uh, it's it's a very difficult situation trying to to figure out what the future of of a situation like that maybe ought to be. Uh, And one minister, or one elder, I should say, I, I don't actually know his name still, uh, was sitting in the seat where I sit uh, each Sunday, and he stood and said, we cannot shut down this church because we are preserving pure worship for these people. And I think on the one hand, there are a lot of right things with what uh, he said, but uh, when we take that statement at face value, we are preserving pure worship for the people at this church. Uh, It's a very difficult statement for us to, to accept that's a statement that's concerned entirely with the exteriors, the, the elements of worship that we put forth. Uh, and I, I want to draw our attention as we come uh, and read Malachi 1 that, that God is not concerned only with the externals, although that is a factor. God wants our hearts as we come in worship. And that is the only way we can offer pure worship before him. And so as we read Malachi 1, the main thing that we need to take away is that there is a call to us, to every believer, to respond to God with Christ's joyful, wholehearted devotion. The call is upon us to respond to God with Christ's joyful, wholehearted devotion. So as we read this, the first burden that Malachi places upon the people is that God's covenant love demands your loving response. And we see this in verses 1 through 6. God's covenant love demands your loving response. Uh, we should be reminded then, as, as Malachi puts forth this information, this, uh, this sort of legal claim, there's almost a, a court action ensuing all throughout the book of Malachi. Uh, the Lord puts forth a statement, I have loved you, 
And the people are allowed a rebuttal, if you will. In what way have you loved us? God then presents the evidence. In fact, his covenant love has always been present despite their circumstances. These are the people who have just returned from Babylonian captivity. They've been put back in their land. They've been given a city, a temple, a sacrificial system, and yet they wonder, perhaps sarcastically, how have you loved us? As evidence in court, God then brings forth a a twin case study uh, one commentator mentioned, you know, oftentimes scientists, when they want to know if something has come about because of nature or nurture, we identify twins and look at uh, the different circumstances that have happened to them. And sure enough, this is what the Lord does in response. Uh, in fact, Paul explains this for us in the New Testament. You'll see on your outline, uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, an explanation of what God cites here. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And here Paul is quoting these verses from Malachi 1. For many Christians, this sentence, this statement, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, is a difficult pill to swallow. Uh, Paul is actually ascribing this uh, to, the, to the doctrine of predestination or of election. Uh, and, and still, that idea that God hates can be very difficult until we remember uh, that this is actually a, a Hebrew analogy, a, a metaphor. Uh, one way to say that I have given preference to one side over the other. Uh, I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. I would prefer that over a bowl of maybe peanut butter chocolate chip, although that's a very hard uh, decision to make, I suppose. Uh, I, I would say maybe I love this, and when I'm eating it, uh, I'll say, oh, no, put that away. I hate that. Now, I would never turn down a bowl of peanut butter chocolate ice cream. But in that situation, uh, as a means of telling you my preference, I would communicate uh, that I love one and hate the other. And this is what God is doing here in speaking of his love and his blessings upon Jacob and Esau and their descendants. Esau and his descendants, the nation of Edom, actually did receive great blessings from the Lord, uh, but they did not receive his covenant love. And in return, Esau never gave honor and glory to God for what he had received. But in fact, God is pointing Israel to the fact that Jacob has been blessed in the past. And in the present, they are not receiving the destruction that Edom is. And in the future, in fact, they will remain. They will see, in verse 5, your eyes shall see and you shall say, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. So here we're reminded that Jacob and the the nation of Israel has a very special place in God's hand and in his heart, uh, as this is his people of the covenant. But in fact, God finishes with a stinging rebuke in verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? The other day I was putting one of our daughters down to bed and as I carried her up uh, the stairs, I leaned over to her ear and I said, I love you. And I got the response, I know. (laughs) Israel's response to God demands so much more. It demands something else. And the first thing that they need to do is readjust. James Montgomery Boyce says that Malachi is teaching us to interpret God's providence 
in the light of his love, rather than reading his love off our interpretation of his providence. Israel was seeking political authority and power, material wealth and prosperity, and a return of the exiles uh, and an abundance in their population because they thought that meant that God loved them. But in fact, that is not what is happening. God calls you likewise to look at your own history, look at your life, and see not only how, but see simply that God has loved you. If your life is lived in the knowledge of God's love, but not in the acknowledgement of his love, then something is terribly wrong. And we need the same burden, the same heavy message that's sent to Israel, placed upon our hearts. There is something terribly wrong when we treat the God of the universe with disrespect. But the problem is, much like the the ancient Israelites, we often don't consider what it looks like to treat God with disrespect. So the second thing we see is that God's universal authority demands your obedient response. God's universal authority demands your obedient response. We see this in verses 6 through 9, where God compares himself to earthly authorities who at the very least get the honor and fear that they deserve. If we don't do that, it despises God's name, and that's what he uh, ascribes here in the following situation. The priests sarcastically want to know, how have we despised your name? And so God compares himself to even a local magistrate, a governor, uh, it's said here. In the ancient world, when you went before an authority figure like that, you would bring an offering, bring uh, some sort of uh, either sacrifice or financial uh, gift uh, in order to show respect for and show the level of authority of that authority figure. So not only have these people not responded with love for their father, they cannot even respond in duty to their master. We remember that the priests are in service to this great authority, the master god of the temple. And when the priests bring a sacrifice, they're actually bringing a meal to God, as the, as the text says, to the Lord's table. And when it's burned, it brings a pleasing aroma. It's offered with incense as a prayer before God. Uh, and just like Psalm 141 verse 2 says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, the incense represents the ascending and pleasing quality of a heart that comes to God in prayer. And in this way, these sensory elements of worship are not just to fill our own senses, but also to give us an understanding of what they mean to God himself. Calvin, in his commentary on Malachi, says, For God would have sacrifices offered to him as though he had his habitation and table among the Jews. It was not, indeed, his purpose to fill their minds with gross imaginations as though he did eat or drink, as we know that heathens have been deluded with such notions. But his design was only to remind the Jews of that domestic habitation which he had chosen for himself among them. So when right sacrifices are brought to God, it's almost like walking into a kitchen where something wonderful is cooking. Uh, Perhaps downstairs at the dinner and dessert auction, smelling Sam's beautiful cooking, we all come in and we, we have an expectation in our mind, a knowledge that we are about to share in something wonderful together. And that is the image that is being conveyed to the ancient Israelites as they come to the Lord's table. They know that they are about to share a meal, the meal of the covenant that is first given to us in Exodus 25. It's a meal. It shows our peace with God. It's not a sit down and, and an argument or a mediation. It's an it's a enjoyable time, a time of fellowship 
with God, where he has his habitation and his table among us. We didn't get to hear Philip preach this morning, so somebody needs to do a royal family illustration. So uh, just a few weeks ago, the queen celebrated uh, her jubilee, 70 years on the throne, uh, the longest reign of any British monarch in history. Uh, Let's imagine for a moment, not that that would ever happen, but that you or I were perhaps invited to one of the many banquets that would have been held for this celebration. Uh, You know that there's going to be uh, great feasting, more food than perhaps you've ever seen in your life, prepared by some of the greatest chefs. Chefs in the modern world, they would spare no expense in bringing the finest foods to the table and in decorating uh, the palace in a beautiful way. You would perhaps march up to the beef eaters, that's the men with the funny tall black hats for those of us that were not born across the pond, Uh, and you would march, uh, find your way up to the front door, be given into the uh, receiving line uh, so that you might shake hands with Her Royal Majesty. And as she walks up to you, rather than presenting your hand, uh, you offer up the faded balloon that you saw stuck under an eave on your walk to the palace, and most of a loaf of stale, moldy bread that you found on the sidewalk. And you could imagine, perhaps you'd be uh, kicked out or uh, thrown into prison for trying to poison the queen. This is not what you bring to this occasion. And yet when we look at the Bible, we see that the king has told us what to bring to worship. God gave clear commands throughout the entire sacrificial system and its laws what was to be brought before him. In your outline, you'll find Leviticus 22, 17 through 22. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of the house of Israel or of the sojourners in Israel presents a burnt offering as his offering, For any of their vows or freewill offerings that they offer to the Lord, if it is to be accepted for you, it shall be a male without blemish of the bulls or the sheep or the goats. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering from the herd or from the flock to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind or disabled or mutilated or having a discharge or an itch or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. So we not only see the command of what is to be brought before God in worship, but we also see a secondary command, an implicit command to Aaron and his sons, if it is to be accepted, the priests are to guard the Lord's table. And here we find that the priests are guilty for not guarding his table. What are the people bringing? Look at verse 8. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? Some uh, translations even say, when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, not evil is what you say when you bring it. And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Look at verse 13. You bring the stolen, the lame, the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand? I need to remember that the Israelites lived in a different society, in an agrarian society. Uh, They farmed and they raised livestock for a living. Uh, And so their sacrifice was to come from their own herds. So they felt the economic pressure and the strain. It becomes more difficult to keep the doors open when you have to give up part of your living each and every day. But what's different about this situation is this is not the tithe and the ritual sacrifice, the Lord says that this is their offering. This is their voluntary giving in the first place. 
You see, our offerings to God are supposed to be not only like those that are given to an authority, but those given to an authority. We're supposed to treat God with at least the respect that we would give to an earthly dignitary. We certainly cannot give him less, but in fact, God demands more from us. As Paul says in Romans 12:1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Paul tells us that in the church today, we are the sacrifices. We are the ones that are being offered up to God in worship. So have you considered what it is that you bring to God in your worship? Do you bring the attitude of someone coming before an authority, a ruler, or a dignitary? In other words, would you behave in front of the president or the queen the way you behave in this sanctuary, the set-apart dwelling place of God? Are your eyes and ears open to close and attentive hearing of the word preached? Or do you bring a blind and deaf sacrifice to God? Are your voice and heart and mind engaged in the speaking and singing of prayers to God in worship? Or do you offer a mute and lame body to the Lord? Are your tithes and your offerings given their due? Or are you offering an incomplete service to him? Do you ever bring, as perhaps this verse suggests, what's been lying on the side of the road and drop it by the temple on your way home? One commentator said, when they offered their blind, lame, and sick animals, they were really making no sacrifice at all. Is your voluntary free will offering to God a sacrifice? Well, the interesting thing is, you can't smell the difference between a blind, lame, or sick lamb and a healthy one when they're all being burned. But God can, because God's not concerned with the lamb. The third point that Malachi makes in this passage is that your half-hearted obedience profanes God's name. We have seen that the people and the priests are allowing uh, terrible and unauthorized sacrifices and offerings to come before God. Uh, It's appalling. It's not simply their sacrifices, though, that should cause us to mourn, but their hearts. At verse 12, we see how it is that they profane the Lord's table. But you profane it in that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, is contemptible. In fact, they despise the Lord's table. They say its food or its fruit may be despised. But what is the food or the fruit of the Lord's table? It's a symbol of their peace and communion with God. And they despise this. We might ask sincerely, how do they do that? How could you despise God's word? The communion that we have with him. And yet the priests ask apathetically, how do we do that? In verse 13, they complain. The ESV says they snort, they turn up their nose at the special work that they, the priests, have been given to worship God Almighty. And who is it that does this? It's the priests that Malachi speaks to. God's response is to show them what happens when they profane his name. In verse 14, Cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. This is the language of the covenant. No more blessings upon you, but may a curse be upon those who do not worship in spirit and in truth. See, our worship is not only something that happens in this sanctuary, but it's seen by a watching world. 
God's reputation is at stake when we do not worship him with a right heart. Not his character, but God's reputation before the world is at stake. And he makes this promise three times within the passage. The first time in verse 5, the Lord is magnified beyond the border of Israel. The second time in verse 11, my name shall be great among the nations. And the third time in verse 14, my name is to be feared among the nations. Our worship may be half-hearted at times, lacking the devotion that we need to bring to him. This does not change the fact that God in his character and in his actions is worth our wholehearted obedience and devotion. I am a great king, and my name will be feared among the nations. So how often do we present God half-hearted obedience? Do we do it on Sundays? Do we do it perhaps at 6 o'clock in the morning when we get up for daily Bible study and pass it up another time? Do we offer God half-hearted obedience when we lie down at the end of the day for prayer and nod off because of our exhaustion and the fact that we haven't prioritized God? What have you promised or vowed to God that you have not given him? Money? Time? Meditation on his word? What is our sacrifice? How do you come to worship? We don't offer burnt offerings today, but there is something more that a right sacrificial system that God requires. In fact, this is what he's always required. We've been singing it in the Psalms all day today. When we look at Hosea 6, uh, God puts it very simply, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Have you considered how you bring your sacrifice to God in worship? Are your eyes and ears open to the close and attentive and dutiful hearing of the word preached? Is it your delight and refreshment to hear God speak into a sick and dying world? Are your voice and your heart and your mind engaged in speaking and singing prayers to God in worship as though it were the greatest appointment you could ever be given? Do you delight to be a doorman in the house of God, let alone a worshiper? Are your tithes and offerings given not only dutifully but joyfully? Are you happy to give to the Lord's work that it might prosper through the blessings he's given to your hands? We have seen what happens when we let our sinful hearts do what they will in response to God. But is there any hope? Can there possibly be a solution? Malachi's declaration is that we need to worship through Christ's perfect, joyful obedience that honors God's name. Point number four, worship through Christ's perfect, joyful obedience honors God's name. And we see this in verses 10 and 11. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering. You see, God's righteous fury over their half-hearted, disappointing sacrifices leads him to make just one wish, or as the ESV puts it, oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. God's desires, of course, will not go unfulfilled. The doors to the temple would one day be shut. On the one hand, ancient Jews continued to offer sacrifices for nearly another 500 years in Jerusalem until the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. 
In that sense, God did close the doors to, that, to those vain sacrifices so that would, they would no longer be given. Interestingly, though, Orthodox Jews continue to pray that the temple would be restored so that they can continue to offer sacrifices. God did something so much greater than close the doors of the physical temple. And this we see as the author of Hebrews explains to us that Jesus' death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice, the giving up of the Lamb of God without blemish. Look with me at Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more will it cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. There is no longer an offering for sin. Christ himself became the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest who actually guards the gates of the heavenly temple and turns away every blind, lame, and sick sacrifice and puts himself in their place. He alone closes the doors and fulfills God's desire because his sacrifice could never be in vain. God the Lord accepts the offering from his hand when he cries out, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this is part of the problem with the sacrifice that the ancient Jews were offering up in Malachi's day. They did not bring a spotless lamb. And so their worship, which was watched by a watching world, reflected that they needed no better sacrifice. The lamb that was supposed to symbolize Christ symbolized nothing more than their own empty works. And so it's important to remember that Christ not only obeyed God's command to be the perfect sacrifice, but he shut the door to any further sacrifices, fulfilling the duty that ancient priests and modern hearts seem unable to do. We still struggle to keep ourselves from bringing deficient sacrifices and half-hearted worship, but praise the Lord that Christ puts his obedience in our place. As we sing each Sunday this month in our Psalm of the Month, Psalm 40, you seek no offering, desire no sacrifice, but you have given me an opened, ready ear. You seek no offerings burnt, nor sacrifice for sin, And we know this is Christ's word because he says, Behold, I come, as in the book foretold. To do your will, O God, is surely my delight. Your law is part of me, set deep within my heart. See, our proper worship and our wholehearted devotion before God is to set his law so deep in our hearts that it is part of us and it is our delight to do his will. As Hebrews 13 says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But how is it that we as sinful creatures are to take on Christ's worship? Ultimately, we remember the call. Respond to God with Christ's joyful, wholehearted devotion. Respond to God with Christ's joyful, wholehearted devotion. You see, as part of God's creation, his people here on earth, we do owe God a response. As Christians, we owe the response 
to our Father of love and to our Master, a response of obedience. One of our daughters offer, uh, answers up a catechism question in this way. Why should you love and obey God? And the answer, because he made me and takes care of me. God made his people. He called out his people. He provides for his people. And so, he is not only our creator master, but our loving father as well. And he has called on us to make a sacrifice, to offer up our hearts and our lives to him in worship. So when you come to worship, we should gladly do so with focused minds, clear hearts, open ears, willing spirits. But as a parent of small children, I know firsthand this is not always possible. So what do we do then? And we cannot offer up our entire selves as God commands. Well, first, remember that Christ replaces your sacrifice with his own. That your offering up to God is only pleasing in the Lord's sight because just like the unblemished lamb of Malachi's day, it points to the one and only perfect sacrifice once and for all. But if you have not accepted Christ's sacrifice as your own, <clears throat> if you have not taken him as the only one who can give a worthy sacrifice in your place, you must know that your offerings will not suffice. You can attempt to work your way to heaven and present an offering of your own fashion, but it will fail. Christ alone closes the chasm between you and God but only if his death and his resurrection are put in your place. Does this mean, then, that we should feel free to worship in whatever way we see fit? I do love psalm singing, and I do believe it's our command as Christ's church, but if Christ has fulfilled our sacrifice of praise, do we really need to be the weird psalm singing church down the road? The answer is yes. We need to only respond to God. We need not only to respond to God with Christ's joyful and wholehearted obedience, but we need to respond to God with Christ's joyful and wholehearted obedience. Shall we keep on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. Right? Hebrews, the rest of that Hebrews passage points us, but do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. We need to let Christ's example guide us, not only in our walk of life, but particularly when we come to the sanctuary. If we walk up to the sanctuary and we offer up feel-good songs, prosperity preaching, and worldly mantras on repeat, is it not evil? Are we doing any of what God commanded us then? Are we uniting to Christ in worship if that is our response to God? This Hebrews passage reminds us that we are called to do something with our changed hearts, that we act upon our salvation and show God the love and obedience he is due as our father and as our master. And it's here that I will side to the elder at Presbytery. I do believe our denomination is preserving pure worship for those who attend to preaching the word, singing psalms, administering the sacraments, and right practicing of church discipline, but these are only the externals. Praise God that he purifies our pure worship, and his name is great before all the nations because of his work. And so, as you come to God's house to worship, remember that we are called to respond to God with Christ's joyful, wholehearted devotion. Let us pray. Our God, we do thank you that despite our poor sacrifices and our half-hearted offerings up to you, you accept us because one has been given who is a right sacrifice. We pray that as we come 
not only in corporate worship, but in individual worship, in family worship, and in the worship and sacrifice that we offer up to you with our daily lives, that we would do so through Christ and through Christ alone, but that we would also do it with the joy that Christ teaches us and with the wholehearted devotion that you deserve as our Father and our Creator, which does not change from day to day. We pray that you would accept our offering of praise today through Christ. In his name we pray. Turn with me now to Psalm 51D. Psalm 51D. I'd like to draw our attention, uh, A, to the fact that this psalm would have been in the Psalter when the Jewish people were worshiping in Malachi's day. To stanzas 8 and 9. Sacrifice you will not take, or the offering I would make. Offerings burnt bring no delight, but a broken heart contrite. God's accepted sacrifice, you, O God, will not despise. Prosper Zion in your grace. Build Jerusalem's walls in place. Then will sacrifices right, offerings burnt, bring you delight. The people in Malachi's day thought that by being restored to Jerusalem and seeing Zion prosper with Jerusalem's walls in place, that everything they offered would be taken care of. And praise the Lord that he has prospered the true heavenly Zion and offered Christ in our place. Let's stand and sing Psalm 51. (laughs) 